listening to a Culture Builders podcast. I'm Chris Preston. I am one of the founders of the Culture Builders, and I'm here to deliver on a promise today. And you probably, if you listen regularly to our podcast, you'll know that quite often when we say goodbye to the guests that come along and give us their time and their stories, we invite them back. And I'm looking back at the episodes thinking we're not very good at doing that. So we've bucked the trend today, and I am delighted to say we have got John Chuser back to join us to talk more about his work and his next book. If you've listened in, you'll know that John Chuser is the author of one of the books that we rave about, which is On Board. He's also uh, an author of another book, which we'll come on to. He's a coach, he's a founder, he's a mentor, he sits on a number of boards, and he's also the originator of a story that came to light directly after our last podcast. So, first of all, hello, John. Good to have you. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. Lovely to be back with everybody. John, you've been busy, we know, and your pen is red hot from the book Sparks, isn't it? So we're going to talk about that because it sounds like a fascinating dip into an area that leaders perhaps are not as good as they think. But let me tell you why I was so desperate to to talk to you, John, and then you can open that up. Directly after our last podcast, I was raving about the, the conversation, sharing all your stories to someone, and they said, I know John. I used to work with John at the World Service. And she then told me a story about something called the Chusagram. Does that ring bells, John? Certainly it does, yes. Not not a name I invented. Okay, no. But other people did. So let me explain what a Chusagram is, and then you you can bring the story to life, but also bring to life the work you did at the BBC World Service, because your reputation precedes you on this one. If you were a busy, successful journalist in the BBC World Service, occasionally you'd come in in the morning and on your desk would be a small card with a typewritten message on it. And these were the Chusagrams. And it was directly from John, who had listened to a recording, a show, a report, or something that they had done for the World Service. And John took the time to say, congratulations, thank you, what a really good piece of work. Those were the Chusagrams, and they lifted people, and people have kept them for years and years of mementos of their success. John, bring that to life a little bit more for me. Yes, thank you very much, Chris. Um, First of all, they were typed correctly, as you say, on an Olivetti Lettera 22. Those were the days. (laughs) That was uh, the late 1980s. Secondly, they were usually typed on the little telephonic memo pads that I nicked from hotels where I stayed on BBC business. So you know, it might be the, you know, Shangri-La in Beijing, and then I would type from me and the message. So they, they perhaps had a certain exotic quality to them as well. And it was just the easiest thing in the world to do. Uh, first thing in the morning when I came into the office, what I heard what had I heard last night or what I heard in the morning? And I thought that was good. Um, and I also want to say, yes. Incidentally, I think that a hand type written physical message is worth more than an email. I bet people don't remember most of the nice congratulatory emails that they get because they are not physical. These were physical and I did them 
because I liked it uh, and I liked them. And it was a very easy way of showing, uh, showing how much I valued what people did and how much I appreciated what they, the, they did. So it's that combination of typewritten, a strange little memo note, and the fact that the internal post would deliver it first thing in the morning. All these things gave it a rather simple, but clearly rather effective cachet. I love that. I, I, you may have heard this, but uh, the, the CEO of Campbell Soup, Doug Connaught, in his time there, would write handwritten notes to his employees. And he'd, over time, he wrote thousands because he felt they were, like you say, they were much more personable. But also, a lot of his workers were canning soup. They didn't have access to digital devices. So he wrote them notes. And sadly, him and his wife were involved in a quite serious car crash. And they were both recovering. And the hospital was just inundated with handwritten notes saying get well soon from his people. So what goes around comes around. Widen out, though, John, because... Explain your role at the BBC World Service, because, again, this is something that I'm, I'd love to hear. When someone says they made an amazing impact, my ears prick up. The role was uh, managing director of what was called external broadcasting when I took over, which was a rather clunky title. And a lot of people said, does that mean that you're in charge of the drains and the gutters? Well, <laughs> I was actually, but uh, there you are. And in course of time, I, I changed it to Managing Director of BBC World Service, which was what it was. And the Managing Director was overall editorially and managerially responsible for 37 language services, uh, English as well, about 2,000 or so people, and several hundred hours, 733 hours of broadcasting uh, each week all around the world. And somehow you had to provide a, an overall leadership message to the people at Bush House in the Strand, which was where the World Service was located. Um, because although everybody there was, in a sense, doing the same thing, what they were doing was broadcasting the best possible information, the truth, as far as you could get it, which you tried, the best possible information around the world to audiences who, for the most part, couldn't rely on getting it from their own broadcast, let alone from their own government. So the managing director, apart from it being quite a big management job, you know, the uh, budget was, 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 was a large one. Um, and the Foreign Office and the Treasury were always looking at it and saying, how well was it spent? But I saw it as a job of identity and um, permission. Identity, that is, what does the World Service stand for? Stands for what I said. I said, is this what you in Bush House believe, yes, that is what we believe. I said, well, that's what I believe as well. That is what I will stand up for, and I will always defend the World Service in the um, in how it achieves what it set out to do. And uh, then I, I also said, 
this is before I actually came into the post, I said, do you think that you are doing this as effectively in broadcasting terms or efficiently in practical terms as you might? And I had three months going around talking to people and almost everybody said, no, we think we can do better. So I said, how do you think you can do better? And they said, thus and thus and thus. So when I came in, I didn't have to come in with, quotes, an agenda for change. The agenda for change was already built into the organization. People wanted to do better. And uh, in some senses, all I had to say, what I had to say was, if this is what you want to do, let us do it. It was the permission to change. Some people didn't go along with this. The overwhelming majority did. So in some senses, it was remarkably easy. Uh, we all believed in the same thing. We all shared ideals and we all knew we wanted to do better. So let's get on to do it. That was what the leadership role was. John, you have the most amazing talent for understatement. <laughs> in some ways, it was very easy to, to turn a beer moth like the BBC World Service in terms of change around that. Just listening to you, I'm thinking, I think maybe you should call yourself a CTO, Chief Truth Officer, in terms of that role. Because you said it there, and it's just worth underscoring that for many years, the BBC World Service was the only source of truth for many people in some pretty tough, unpleasant situations. It was a calling. So you step in to a group of people who are massively passionate. I've spoken to people who work in the World Service, and it's a calling, isn't it? they're determined to go and make a difference. It's not a career, it is a calling. So you've got all that yeah. passion. How do you harness that and get it pointing effectively as you include them in the change? By making it clear that their knowledge, their passion, their sense of purpose was what mattered. Nobody was going to interfere with that because that was what the World Service was about. And that everything else finances, uh, etc., would be managed in such a way that it enabled their passion, their knowledge, uh, their commitment to be fully expressed and, and harnessed. Uh, there were very, very few people who didn't understand this. You know, from, from one, really from one point of view, it was remarkably um, simple. There was consent. Uh, I didn't have to force anybody to do anything. This was saying, this is your ideal, this is our ideal, because I believed in it as well. It's our ideal, we want to do it, let us now do it, and let us tell the world, and actually the domestic British audience, about what we are doing. Um, because there was an interesting moment very early on when the Sunday Telegraph printed a large full-page diatribe against the World Service from an expat listener in the south of Spain, who, as you can imagine, had a certain view about how the BBC should broadcast and what it should say. And it said all sorts of things about, you know, we only ever broadcast about foreigners and uh, so on and so forth. And everybody at Bush House was very upset by this article. And I said, well, how much of what it says is true, is accurate? 
And I said, well, most of it isn't accurate. So I said, okay, well, get all these facts done and I'll reply to the Telegraph. And the first reaction then was, well, are you sure you want to do that because it may only cause trouble? And I said, well, if all these things are untrue, why are we allowing them to stay on the record? So they said, are you sure? I said, yes. So we got all the facts. I sent a long piece to Telegraph. They carried it. We never heard from that person again. And the important thing was internally, everybody knew that the leadership at Bush House would stand up for what Bush House did against anybody, whether it was UK government from time to time or a foreign government. And that that really had a very big effect because what I said, you can't be frightened. You know, if somebody says something untrue about the organization, you've got to put it right. So that also, it was a terribly important moment, but it was curiously, curiously easy to do. But we needed to get over that hurdle of not being frightened. We won't go into this, John, but it does feel like that attitude is sorely missing at the moment with the BBC. And all I'm seeing is an organisation that's taking a constant battering and apologising rather than some of that fire that you talk about. And Yes. <laughs> the idea that your response really probably sent the message to your global audience that don't mess with the World Service is forced to yep. reckon with. So day to day, what did it look like? You're in this passionate, driven organisation where people are delivering on knowledge and skill and they're calling. How do you steer a ship like that? What were the things that you were doing regularly or that you were avoiding doing to make sure that you were giving that free reign to the right people? Well, I think almost by definition, if you give free reign, for example, to, to the newsroom, the newsroom was processing hundreds, thousands of pieces of information the, the, the whole time. A, they knew what to do. B, they knew how to do it. C, they knew what their discipline was. It did not need me to come along and say, um, why are you covering that story in, in that way? I might very, very, very occasionally, but they were hardened, seasoned journalists. And so on a daily basis, uh, the broadcasting ran itself one of the things that we did, though, and this was all part of the desire to do things better, I said, we know quite a lot about what the English language World Service is doing because we can hear it. What are the 37 languages doing? I don't know uh, what the Russian service is doing because I don't speak Russian. I don't know what the Hauser service is doing because I don't speak Hauser. And we started a process of review where we looked at every language program output in turn, translated the material, and then subjected them to the same standards as the World Service English. Because we wanted to make sure there wasn't any sort of gap between what the English listeners were getting and what the language listeners were getting. And this also, and this, this, this took a certain amount of time, but it was time well spent, because it showed to the language services that we valued their output, even though sometimes it might not be more than half an hour a day. We valued their output because we valued their listeners as much as we valued the listeners and the output of the English 
service. So that I think balanced or rebalanced internally in, in Bush House, the, uh, the relationship between the World Service in English and the 37 language services in, in, in different languages. That also did a great deal for the respect, the self-respect of those who broadcast in non-English languages. And chat a little bit about the culture within the organisation. What, what, what did you walk into and what did you need to change or build? Or was it something that was actually very strong and it's a case of you being an ex-custodian of it? Oh, there was, there was a large element of being the custodian of what it stood for, but um, how the broadcasting was done, how the broadcasting sounded, also the range of what the broadcasting actually did. These were matters where you could say, well, can you do better? Can you do something more interesting? Can you do something more, more varied? Um, it, it was a question of, of uh, doing that. A lot of my time was was actually spent working and presenting the interests of the World Service as part of the domestic BBC. One director general, above all, really understood how important it was. That was Michael Checkland. Some of the others didn't. Some of my fellow colleagues, uh, because the managing director of the World Service was on the overall BBC board of management. Uh, one of my colleagues, who was the controller of BBC One, just thought that the World Service was so strange, it was almost comic dealing with foreigners. And on one occasion, there was some particular crisis in Djibouti. Now, Djibouti is not very large, it is not very important, but it was an issue we had to deal with. And even the mention of the name Djibouti reduced my colleague, the controller of BBC One, to hysterics. He thought a world in which people cared about what happened in Djibouti was just inherently funny. So uh, there was a certain amount of, there was actually quite quite a lot of that that I had to do. And then it was presenting the World Service politically as well to, to MPs and saying this thing, this place matters and this is why. It sounds to me like a lot of your role was being the kind of shell over the organisation to protect what was inside, that to allow those amazing people with all those talents to go and do the things that drove them, almost kind of being the shield against the criticism and the ridicule and the questions and the yes. unfair criticism. You know, would you say that's a good part of what you were doing, that they felt, I think you said it, they, you'd got their back? Yes, absolutely. I was very... A, I thought that was important. I mean, really important. And B, it was something that I was happy to do. And the more that we made it clear that I and my managers would always stand up for the World Service in the public against whoever it was, uh, it almost became easier. And um, uh, I think everybody in in bush house knew that there were never any doubts about whose side is management on management is on your side and therefore on the side of the audience the listeners and shouldn't that's just how it should always be i guess there's no 
I can't see a reason where it wouldn't be that, but you do see situations where it feels like an organisation's main group of people are working at odds to the leadership, and it, it is an unhappy place. Yes, I don't think that was. I'm sure that was not the not 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 the case. One of the things that helped, you know, was um, uh, as you know, I, I came over to England in 1939. I was born in what was then Czechoslovakia. And my parents spoke rather fractured and sometimes colourful uh, English all their lives. So I wasn't frightened of what you might call funny accents. I wasn't frightened of foreigners. In a sense, I was a foreigner myself. Anyway, everybody at Bush House knew this. Um, so as far as I was concerned, it was a wonderful environment to be with people from probably 60 different nations and languages speaking not just their own language, which I also found interesting, but English as they 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 had it. Um, and that also made the sense of identification. My identification with the producers and the program makers and their identification, they knew I hadn't been parachuted in as it were, from some outside world. And actually, one of the reasons that I was appointed by the BBC Board of Governors, and the chairman was Stuart Young, was he thought, quite amazingly, I don't want a mere BBC apparatchik to be dropped onto the World Service, because there will be a mismatch between who they are and what the World Service is. So they found an obliging foreigner. <laughs> My hunch is, though, that your your history, your upbringing, your family would have given you an additional layer of empathy with the people that you work with. And there's that great quote, which is not mine, but again, I'll steal it happily, which is, a foreign accent is a sign of bravery. And someone with your background working with all those languages, I would have thought there would have been a different mix to someone else. Um, yes, I, 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 uh, I think so. I never thought of the foreign language like that. But as I say, I was never, A, I was never worried by them. And B, I actually enjoyed the sound because that was the sound of my home. And that was the sound of most of my parents' friends. So the atmosphere that I'd been brought up in I then found myself on a large scale at Bush House. So it was for me, uh, a certain way, it was like being in a super large family home. What a lovely image. I love that. And I'm not setting you up for a fall here, John, but you've talked passionately about how your role in, within the BBC World Service was to kind of create that, that protective layer and be the people that fought on behalf of those talented people. And yet you're about to equip leaders with a potentially dangerous tool, which is innovation and creativity, isn't it? <laughs> so let's let's move on to that, because I, there's nothing worse than um, someone in charge coming up and saying to you, I've had a good idea. Your heart sinks. And I, I've done work with police officers in the UK. And back in the day, the police would have a acronym 
that they would call through to the dispatcher. So if there was an accident or an incident, they would keep the dispatch aware. And at some point, they would radio through to the dispatch and say, could you please record that it is now chaos? And chaos stood for chief arrives on scene. <laughs> no, I don't know if the chief actually ever knew that, but tell me about Spark and your focus on leadership and what, what, what you're encouraging leaders to do and how, because I think it's a really worthy cause. I think it's how it's channeled that's going to be interesting. Well, the, the, the book's called Bright Sparks and the uh, additional title is Bright Sparks Who Refuse to Become Damp Squibs. And uh, yes, it's about leadership, but I suppose the book, which is seven case studies of individuals who had a great idea, and we all have great ideas, which then, you know, vanish by the end of the morning, but who had a great idea, usually a great idea which they were told wouldn't work, was wrong, was nonsense, wasn't practical, or whatever. And these seven, all in slightly different ways, said, it is a good idea. I will work on it. I will deliver it. And they did it. And they certainly provided leadership. Interesting question, which we can discuss, no, no doubt, is whether there is a lesson for official leaders in how these de facto leaders worked, because most of them were not in a position of authority. They just had an idea, and they had to make their idea work outside the framework of an organization. And indeed, most of them would not have been able to do what they did within the framework of an organization, which clearly raises other questions for why organizations cannot accommodate people like the seven that I describe in this book. Bring it to life, John. Give, give me a quick praise of, of one of the stories so that we can kind of we can riff yes. on that if that's okay without giving away the, the, the guts of the book it sound, I, I know it's not out yet so I'm waiting for my copy hint <laughs> um, okay I'll, I'll uh, give you one it's 1990 in Poland Poland has just come out of 40 years of absolutely sterile ghastly communist rule it's just starting to wake up. And a middling-aged Shakespeare scholar called Jerzy Limon, working in Gdansk on the Baltic coast, said, you know, in the 17th century, English actors, English actors, used to come from London to Gdansk, and they performed Shakespeare in Gdansk. And they did it for 60 years, and he'd written about it. And he said, I think we should build a Shakespeare theater in Gdansk. And everyone said, Yerji, you are actually crazy. His wife said, you know, Yerji, please, please, can we do something sensible? He said, no, 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 no. We must do it. We must do it. Don't know how, we must. 
one of the first things he did was he wrote a letter to the then Prince Charles. And his wife said, Yerji, what are you doing writing to Prince Charles? And he said, well, he loves Shakespeare and he's patron of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre. So maybe he'll be patron of the Gdansk Shakespeare Theatre. So she said also, where, uh, all right, where are you sending in the letter? He said, I'm sending it to Buckingham Palace. She said, Yerji, he doesn't live in Buckingham Palace. And he said, no, that's all right. It's the Royal Mail and the Royal Mail will find him. Silence for a few months and a letter came back from Charles's office saying Prince Charles is thrilled with the idea and he will happily be patron of your project. He then he himself visited Gdansk and he hosted various receptions, etc, etc. But Yerzy slowly built up the idea. He negotiated, he talked with the European Union, he did things in Gdansk and 25 years later they opened what is actually an absolutely brilliant, brilliant piece of architecture and theatre in, in Gdansk in 2014. So it was a 25-year period from the dream when everybody said, Yerji, you are crazy, which he probably was. They just said, no, you have to have ideas. And I believe, he said, I believe in fortune. Fortune will bless us. Now, Yerji, was he a leader? He certainly was, because if he hadn't led, it couldn't have happened. Mm. So I don't know whether that, that gives you an idea of the sort of people they are. Um, it, it doesn't. It corrects me quite nicely, John, because this is the danger of assuming you know what a book's about by the title. So you're talking about people that lead the idea, who create yes. a followership rather than leaders who say, I want something to happen and change. You've got to do the audio book, John. <laughs> I could sit here all day listening to this. I mean, that, yes. I love that. I love the inspiration around it. And I'm, I work on stories. So a book that's got seven stories in is going to be manna from heaven to me. Oh. What drove you to write it, John? Because you are a busy, busy person. Let's make no bones about it. Chris, I've, I've now forgotten why I started to write it. <laughs> I, think, um, I think I started to become aware that... There were a lot of people I knew who had done something uh, remarkable and something against the odds uh, of which that was one. Though I didn't know Limon and a friend gave me that idea. But for example, one of the other ideas, one of the other people um, is a woman called Joy Breyer, who was a young woman in 1948 cycled with her sister through uh, what was he very heavily war-damaged Western Europe. I think she cycled from Paris to Amsterdam. Uh, she was American. Her family had originally come from the Baltic. But as she cycled through the ruins, she thought, this can't happen again. You know, we must do something. I must do something which contributes to a sense of European identity and unity. And said, I know what, 
we'll create an orchestra of the brightest young musicians from what is first of all the European community and then became the European Union. She had no background in music, whatever. She had an idea. Everybody said, this is crazy. This is crazy. Um, and after about 15, 20 years, they started. Um, and the EUYO, as it now is, is still going. It is still going strong. It still represents excellence in performance and the ideal of European unity, because there have always been players from every single member of the whatever the, the European institution was. But it took her so long, probably 15, 20 years of gestation, and then slowly, slowly uh, developing. Um, and one thing she brought to the party was colossal chutzpah and, and egotism. She could ask anybody. She was absolutely fearless in asking anybody to do anything. And she said, we've got to have a great conductor to conduct this. They said, who's a great conductor? Well, there's no bloke called Leopold Stokowski. Well, let's ask him. So they just wrote to Stokowski. We said, yes. As you do, yes. As, as you do. And she said, you know, in those days, you just looked up the address. Didn't have to go through myriad of uh, people. And then later she said, well, we need a permanent conductor. Um, isn't that fellow Abado quite good? And they said, yes. So she waylaid him in the hotel. <laughs> said, would you do this? He said, yeah, yes. And he was quite a young man then. But um, she had chutzpah. She was a terrific egotist. One of the things about these people is that a lot of them are huge egotists, but they use their egotism in the service of their idea. Yeah. I mean, joy, joy was flamboyant beyond, beyond belief, but it's because of what she wanted people to do for the orchestra. You're talking, and three words are bouncing around my head, and that first one is that passion. You know, the, the kind of passion that this great idea, this, this world-changing idea, which they are, the two you shared, are, are big. Then I guess the second one is tenacity. Because you're talking, yes. you're talking in decades to get the idea off, and then the last word that I, <laughs> I think you probably your hooks probably better, but the audacity that you need as well to to contact the world famous composers and, and um, conductors and to write to royalty to get your ideas off the ground. You know that that audacity. Yes, fortune favors the bold. Yeah, but you see, although Chris, um, you might say, look. The number of people who are who dare to do this is so small. Therefore, what lessons are there? I mean, there are lessons, and what you said, you must dare. One thing is, all the people in in the book, Joy took huge risks. Um, yes, of course, Rory Stewart, about whom there's also a chapter, took enormous risks. And again, one of the characteristics of these people is that they took the risks and they said to the people who worked for them, we've agreed that we'll do this. I said, let's go ahead and do it. If anybody questions it, send them to me. So the full assumption of responsibility. And therefore protection of the people who are doing the work. 
Yeah, which is exactly what we've been talking about all the way through. Yes. John, again, we've gone over time. And I think we could probably, and I say this, we could fill quite a few of these podcasts. When is the book out on general release? Book comes out on September the 28th. It is called Bright Sparks. It is published by Bloomsbury Business, who are a very good publisher. But there are seven stories. You believe in stories. I believe in stories. Each one of these is the story of an individual or a group of individuals who believed in something, took it up, and did it. Um, and I was going to say they did it in an unselfish way. They put themselves on the line to do something which was greater than them. That's a kind of leadership, isn't it? That is amazing. I, yeah, you. it sounds brilliant, John. I am going to get a copy, and then I'm going to go onto eBay, and I'm going to track down one of your old typewriters. I've got yeah, some notepads from Holland Hotels. I'm going to write you a little chrisogram to say thank you, because anyone that takes the time to capture great stories... In, in my world is, is my hero because stories do the heavy lifting and they point the way and they encourage you to consider what they're teaching you rather than just what you're listening to. So thank you, John. I appreciate yeah. that you've taken the time. Um, long may you keep writing. And I'm going to say it and I'm going to mean it. We're going to get you back again <laughs> for book three, which I'm sure you're probably thinking about already. I am. Chris, it has been an enormous pleasure. I really, really valued it. And um, thank you for helping me set out some ideas and I hope teasing people. In fact, there are some great examples out there, but it, it, it's been an enormous pleasure. Thank you very much. Good luck with the book, John. We'll speak soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a Culture Builders podcast. 